This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. My name is Dan Sheese, and I'm one of the Surgical Education Fellows for Behind the Knife. I recently started a new series called Innovations in Surgery, where we had the privilege of sitting down with Dr. Daniel Hashimoto and discussing his amazing work in the field of artificial intelligence. If you haven't already, I highly suggest giving that episode a listen. But today, we have a new innovation topic and new guest for you. I have the pleasure of introducing an incredible attending and teacher for my home program, Dr. Michael Amendola. Dr. Amendola has received his medical degree, completed his general surgery residency, and vascular surgery fellowship at Virginia Commonwealth University. He is board certified by the American Board of Surgery in both general and vascular surgery. In 2021, he was inducted into the American College of Surgeons Academy of Master Surgeon Educators. He maintains privileges at the Central Virginia VA Healthcare System in Richmond, Virginia, and is a professor of surgery at VCU. Additionally, he is the program director of the Office of Advanced Manufacturing Central Virginia VA Healthcare System-based 3D Printing Surgical Fellowship. And with him today is one of my co-residents, Dr. Diana Otoya. Dr. Otoya is a third-year general surgery resident at VCU. She spent her first research year at, as a Veterans Health Administrative Chief Resident in Quality and while also becoming the inaugural fellow for the VHA 3D Printing Surgical Fellowship. She is now currently in her second year in the 3D Printing Fellowship Program. Welcome Dr. Amendola and Dr. Otoya to Behind the Knife. Dan, great to, to hear from you again and see you now virtually or talk with you virtually and thanks for the invitation. Thanks for having us, Dan. Very excited to be here. Yeah, thank you guys. So Getting into 3D printing, I first heard of 3D printing when I was in college talking with some of my engineering friends. Can you tell us a little bit more about the history of 3D printing and how it's made its way into the healthcare setting? So 3D printing is what we call an additive manufacturing approach. So traditionally, when we've made things, we've always done what we call subtractive manufacturing. So for example, if you take an ax, you cut down a tree, you whittle that down to a handle, you get a rock, you chisel that away to the end of the ax, you connect the two together. So 3D printing is you start from the base materials and you print what you want from the very, very beginning. So there's incredible utility in that you can print exactly what you need. Now, where this kind of all started is in the automotive and, and um, aeronautical industry for the most part, but now has infiltrated into hospital systems and what we call point of care uh, implementation of 3D printing, um, of which the VA is one of the leaders in the country with that with that technology applying it. So with 3D printing, um, my understanding is, you know, these printers are extremely expensive. But recently, one of my friends told me he actually um, bought one and has in his bedroom. Uh, what are the different types of 3D printing printers out there? And, you know, what type of printers are being used in the hospitals? So there's a variety of different types in that there's a variety of kind of approaches where you could cure or set up materials. You can either jet them out similar to like you do an inkjet 
And you can cure that either with light UV light, or you can cure that with heat. Um, so those are kind of basically FMD or fused, um, uh, or I'm sorry, stereolithography uh, technology and kind of layering it down. And you'll see models that have kind of layers or stair steps to them. There's other approaches where you, you basically can, uh, you formulate and like a nylon bath, you can set up a lot of different models as well. Uh, so there's there's a lot of different approaches and materials, but you're right, it's become something that was very esoteric and only in the hands of very few. And now you can buy these printers on Amazon. I think Dr. Atoya actually has a 3D printer in her house. Uh, we've bought her a couple at the VA as well. Um, but again, I think that's now what we're seeing is the technology is infiltrating into the hobbyist world and also is also infiltrating into a lot of hospital systems, which creates and sometimes a unique problem in that you have a technology that is being diffused across, but you have to be careful how you apply that within the hospital. I think one interesting point that Dr. Amendola makes is yes, you you know, you can buy these printers off of Amazon for pretty cheap. I think you can get one for even as cheap as a hundred bucks. And uh, the one like I particularly have uses a resin material, which is a liquid and it cures it using UV light, which is pretty easy to, to use. And they're pretty small nowadays. But I think what really kicked off a lot of this technology and a lot of the use of this technology in hospitals too, was the start of the COVID pandemic, um, where a lot of 3D printers were being used to make things like the um, testing swabs, masks, and even, you know, the visors for um, what do you call it? So it's a replacement for PPE. Mm -hmm. So, Thank you. yeah. So the question really is for 3D printing in that setting is how you can get rapid iteration for PPE. So making an ideal mask, for example, could you take a mask? So one of the products that we had in VA, and this was actually part of a large consortium in the midst of the pandemic, where you could take a mask, for example, have a plastic insert, and you could take a traditional surgical mask and cut it up and use it several times and basically take one mask and make it five masks. So the ability to iteratively change something in the hospital system to solve in the middle of the pandemic, for example, a supply chain problem was the real crucial key to why a lot of this kind of got kickstarted within hospital systems, at least in terms of the iterative design of, of things that we need in the hospital. Swabs being another key example as well. Um, in the middle of the pandemic, one thing that came up quite often was ventilator splits. So we printed some ventilator splits, but like many anesthesia and critical care organizations eventually ruled against sharing ventilators, we stopped doing that. But again, we were able to create that solution and possibly implement it within our system, albeit in that case, we did not necessarily proceed forward with it. So it's interesting that, you know, PPE and, and COVID really, uh, really brought a lot of 3D printing into the hospital. But now let's kind of turn to talking about as surgeons, um, three and the role of 3D printing, how can this help with uh, preoperative planning in cases? So there's an evolving literature in different disciplines, predominantly right now being let off um, in neurosurgery and neurology with other with other program or other uh, disciplines, for example, um, uh, OMFS, where you can apply and you the technology is getting to the point where you can make pretty quickly 
accurate models for pre-surgical or pre-procedural planning. It's also not just in surgery. It's it's kind of more broad-based in that you can have pre-procedural planning. So one of the projects that Diana's on now is looking at left atrial appendage planning using 3D printing. So in terms of planning those cases endovascularly, or in this case, across the septum to get into the left atrium, there's a lots of planning that goes on that the 3D model will give you that traditional imaging that the model is initially based on, for example, does not. So having the model in your hand, there's some inherent value there that surgeons really grasp. And a lot of that's because we think in three space. We solve problems daily in three space and convert two space reality to three space, especially in the operating room. So there's a unique uh, kind of niche there and approach for surgeons to use these models to help them kind of understand what they're getting into prior to getting into it. To kind of piggyback off of that, like for left atrial appendage or really any catheter-based procedures, right, like endovascular procedures, you can kind of use these models to practice what sort of catheters you'll need, what sort of device sizing you will need. Um, there's a lot of a lot of data and literature behind structural heart disease, like mitral valve replacements, aortic valve replacements, and sizing, because you can you can make these models based on a one-on-one size for your patient. And so instead of trying to resize or exchange multiple catheters during the procedure, you can now cut down procedure times, fluoroscopy times. Uh, blood loss. And so these models have been really helpful in kind of planning and improving patient outcomes in that way. And in a lot of other ways, you know, with patients that have aberrant anatomy, um, we have found that it's pretty, pretty helpful in those scenarios where you are helping communication between various teams. If, If you have pediatrics, for example, with congenital abnormalities, you're helping your residents understand the anatomy better. You're, as an attending, are able to translate what is in your mind to your to your residents so they can really understand the case, so that anesthesia can understand the case, so that when you drop the patient off in the ICU, per se, the ICU team can really understand the anatomy and what you did. Um, and there's a lot of literature, too, behind, you know, the transition of care and, and how these surgical models are really helping with some of these outcomes. So my understanding is that these 3D models are are unique as as these are very specific to the patient, right? That they are taking a CT or MRI image and and constructing these models that that are identical to the patient's anatomy. That's correct. So the, it is the ultimate kind of embodiment of personalized medicine. And so when you think about concepts like informed consent, you you really can take patient education to a different level when you hand the patient their actual anatomy. And we've had cases, we have had a recent case um, that one of our previous fellows uh, worked on, which was a rectal gist tumor, having putting that in the hands of the patient and to explain exactly where the gist was, how large it was, how much it had regressed based on Gleevec, and Subsequently, how much it invaded the levators and what the operative approach was and potential complications afterwards. In the mind of the patient, it just kind of all clicked because you have a model in your hand. So, but you know, if you think about it as surgeons, we really restrict in a lot of ways what we can do in terms of a piece of paper and a pencil or pen. And even standard models, I think some patients don't really grasp it when when you say this is your mass. 
they really sign on to that and they're much more invested in that. And it's easier in a lot of ways to communicate with patients. So patient education is another kind of spinoff of this aside from the expert user of the models. And then the other thing that Diana had mentioned as well is education and simulation, which I think will, this will revolutionize, I think, where we're going to go in surgical education, the ability to print pathology and allow trainees to work with that pathology, albeit in simulated bowel, which we've done uh, with, uh, with our partners in DOD, as well as simulated, for example, an endarterectomy specimen, uh, uh, endarterectomy example we're, we're working on in Richmond. So there's a lot of different perturbations of this, which I think will really affect resident education moving forward. To kind of go off on that, I think the way that the VA has established our 3D printing services and the way the fellowship has been set up and what I've been trained is, is a physician will request a model for a specific patient. And based on the imaging, the CT scan that they obtained, that will go in um, our team, our 3D printing team will then get the images. We will have a consultation with the requesting physician or surgeon where they'll discuss, you know, what features they're looking for in the model, what benefits they're hoping to gain from the model, what questions they have that the model may answer. And we take that clinical knowledge and we go back to the images and we set what we could do call segmentation, where we take the CT scanned, or you can do it based on, you know, ultrasound, MRIs. There's a wide variety of imaging that you can use to make these models. And segmentation basically allows you to outline the anatomy one by one, and you you create different parts of the anatomy, and you can kind of all put it together into one one model with some post-processing, and you can kind of send it to the printer, have this um, model made. And then you, there's a lot of post-processing that happens afterwards as well, which requires our engineering team and specialists and techs that we're then, you know, really able to take it back to the surgeon and be like, here's your model. Does this meet what you, you know, the, your needs? Did this answer your question? And then we often see that these models, you know, are being used, like Dr. Amendola said, preoperatively for patient consents and education, um, for communication between the teams intraoperatively where physicians will take these models into the operating room, kind of, you know, if they're stuck in between the case, they'll look back at the model if they like are looking at aberrant anatomy or if they're trying to, you know, decide where to dissect and then postoperatively too, you know, with communication with the teams afterwards. We'd like to take a minute to share a great opportunity to contribute to surgical education research and make a few bucks doing it. A team at the Brook Army Medical Center is working to better define proficiency-based metrics for competency in commonly performed general surgery procedures. If you are a PGY-4 or 5 general surgery resident or a practicing surgeon who performs robotic cholecystectomies or inguinal hernia repairs, take a minute to reach out to the study team for more information on how you could be compensated up to $400 for recording and submitting videos of you performing surgery. All you have to do is check out the show notes for the contact information dominate the day. So you mentioned they're um, bringing in the models and into the operating room and and using them, trying to assess the anatomy better. Um, Are there any other uses for 3D printing in the operating room? Are are we 3D printing implantable devices? So there there is, there's definitely, so right now, commonplace for OMFS reconstructions, for example, for fibular free flaps. 
um, you can you can get commercially available models or cut what they call marking guides where you can cut the fibula to how you want to reconstruct a mandible, for example. So that's under a pretty strict regulatory pathway with FDA. VA actually has the same regulatory pathway approval as does a lot of external companies. Part of that was our response to our stakeholders within VA who were asking for this technology. And so now we have that um, approval and we're able to move forward with um, marking guides, for example, um, within our within our borders, which is which is good news for us. So to answer your question, that's what we call advanced surgical planning. So that is models, or in that case, you could have marking guides, but you also could have a mandible, and you can actually mold metal parts to that. So that's a sterilizable model that actually can be used in the midst of an operation. As you can predict, that creates other complexities in terms of how you sterilize it is the model. Can the model be sterilized? Is the material, you know, does the material carry um, it? Can you sterilize the material? So there's a little bit different regulatory burden there than traditional handheld pre-surgical models that most of our surgeons are asking for in terms of using them within, within the operating room. What are these implantable um, models made of what are these what are this, what material are the 3d printings so, using so you can yeah so you can um you, you know what's on the horizon i think a lot of that is going to be metal-based printers so that is now starting to infiltrate into a lot of 3d printing circles that's been in aeronautical and in cars so for example a lot of cars have 3D printed parts or unified parts that are unique to those individual designs. Um, but moving forward, we will probably see 3D printed stents, for example, in vascular surgery. That will probably be a reality and or possibly even cardiac stents where you're going to have a complexity of plastic um, and or other materials with metal. So there's a the printers now are getting to the point where you're going to be able to have multiple materials that are going to be able to be printed. We're just at the very beginning of that. The actual lift for metal printing is pretty high. That is to get metal into a liquid form to be able to print it. There's a lot of, a lot of times toxic uh, byproducts that you have to deal with. So that's not commonly done now in hospitals. That said, we have metal printers within VA. Metal printing is a big um, approach for our DOD partners as well. So there's a lot of there's that's I think probably the next physical implants that you're going to see. There have been physical implants in orthopedics, for example, that have been metal printed, that have been implanted in patients. Not that's not necessarily NVA. Uh, but the other thing to think about also is bioprinting. So actually printing uh, bone replacement uh, within within patients is going to be crucial as well. And then ultimately, where I think we will go in transplant will be some element of transplanted organs that will be 3d printed albeit on a matrix where a matrix is there and you can put cells into that matrix to fulfill a certain function um, or if you can actually print the actual organ that's many many years off but that is the general direction in which this is going and the technical lift in terms of getting the printers and getting them reliably to work um, is the first step and we are at the beginning of that now I think the only implantable material that you left out there is this new, um, it's not very new to the orthopedic world, but it's called peak. Um, it's polyethylene ethyl ketone, which is a th synthetic material that is 
being used in a lot of like hip and spine surgery, um, which you can also 3D print for custom parts. Um, and I know that there are new printers that are starting to be, be able to use that because it's a lot easier to use um, in terms of like safety profile for 3D printing. You don't need as much of like um, like a safety in terms of like ventilators and um, getting all the debris out of the way that is unique for like metal printers. You, you kind of touched about some possible um, future uses of 3D printing with these transplantable organs and, and uh, things like that. What else do you see being the future of this technology, especially in the role of surgery? I think what you're going to see is the ability to simulate patient anatomy, but you're also going to have surgical rehearsal which is going to be able to allow us to use the materials or use these models that handle like they do in the operating room. That's so like we do in the operating room and also the disease states that we commonly find in the operating room. So the ability to mimic that is pretty crucial. And it's an interesting environment for us in VA because we embed our engineers with us. So when we go to the operating room, for example, and we do an endarterectomy, we bring engineers in to look at the disease state. So when they start thinking about how we're going to print this, and how we're going to mimic this pathology, there's an incredible value for our engineers to be at the operating room table with us to say, now I understand what you mean, how much calcium is in the wall. Now I understand that some parts are very soft and other parts are more pliable. I understand that the artery is likely to fall apart. Being able to pull all that together in a model and make something that is pretty good to high fidelity is the real key for 3D printing. And the, once we have that kind of approach, then we can print 500,000 of them. We can print as many as we want. We can print it so that it's not in simulations labs, but it's in every medical student's pocket. I mean, so that's, so that's again, it's democratization of kind of the idea of what you see in the operating room and getting across to a lot of different learners, especially in the case, not necessarily for medical students, but for advanced trainees, like you guys are getting in your general surgery training, is get it to the point where you see esoteric things you might see only once in your training, or things that are high stakes, for example, in pediatric surgery for pyeloroplasty. Being able to mimic that and model that, and to teach trainees that, is going to be, I think, going to be crucial. And based on that, and I think there's a whole literature yet to be written about this, is what is the value of that? Because the literature to date has had some of those markers, especially in neurology, that the, the literature is pretty good in terms of pre-surgical planning for kidney approaches, for example, and blood loss, operating room time, and complications. But I think it has yet to be written in a lot of other specialties. So... For any listeners interested in getting involved with 3D printing, uh, what advice do you have? What programs are out there for them to look into? So um, I'll, I'll defer to Dr. Otoya first. I'll let her see answer. Well, I think uh, the easiest way to get involved is, you know, you can look at all your sorts of re like resources, like there's the internet, you can start reading about 3D printing. There is actually like, if you're looking for it, just 
to do for fun. You know, you can buy yourself a 3D printer for pretty cheap. And there are actually a lot of free resources. Like there's a thing called Thingiverse. You can Google it and there are a ton of 3D printed um, designs that you can just download for free and you can upload your own designs. And there it's, it's an entire community, which is, um, got a ton of resources and it's a good way for you to get involved. There are a lot of free software for um, 3D printing as well so that you can start designing and kind of experiencing some of that, um, uh, like not segmentation, but um, there's a lot of free software out there that you can download um, that'll allow you to kind of play around with the technology in terms of 3D printing and design. Um, if you're trying to get involved with it in medicine, uh, the Office of Advanced Manufacturing through the uh, VA um, offers a 3D printing fellowship. It is probably one um, of very, very few across the country, the entire U.S. that are offering full fellowships for 3D printing for surgical residents in particular. Um, we have actually done a lot of research in this and have looked for um, other fellowships in 3D printing, and most of them are for radiology um, residents that are available through Mayo and Stanford, but for surgical residents in particular, um, to be able to get a lot of exposure to this technology, to be able to get exposed to the different type of printers and have access to engineers, uh, the Office of Advanced Manufacturing um, Fellowship is really kind of one of its kind and we are now offering up to a two-year fellowship uh, for people. And I've the last two years, I've learned so much um, in terms of what this technology can do and how you can use it in medicine and just in everyday um, aspects. And so if you're interested, you know, feel free to email Dr. Amendola. The uh, program is going to continue. There's funding there for a couple of more years. And we're really hoping to make this a longstanding thing where we're not just having two fellows per year, but that we will continue to grow as a program and uh, shoot for expansion of our program so that we can get surgical fellows um, from across the country. Because the thing that we've learned about, you know, through the pandemic is that you can do a lot of things virtual and a lot of this technology can also be learned um, virtually. And the amazing thing is that the VA um, has printers ac across the nation. And so there are about, you know, 97 different VAs across the country that have 3D printers that I think a lot of surgical residents don't even know about. And a lot of those VAs are affiliated with um, universities and with um, residencies. And you just kind of have to dig through those opportunities um, we have several sites that we work through across the country with the VA. Uh, we've got hubs over in Seattle, Washington. We've got hubs in Charleston, uh, Milwaukee, Cleveland. And so we kind of have unlimited access to a lot of engineers. Yeah. So the Office of Advanced Manufacturing started at three predominant sites in Seattle, Charleston, and Richmond, and now has expanded to Cleveland and Pittsburgh. There are other affiliated sites, uh, sites, for example, in Milwaukee. So part of the fellowship is part of a virtual support of the whole system across the whole United States. So for example, this year and the second year, what we've decided to do is embed our fellow in Seattle, which is the largest number of printers, so Diana went to Seattle and was there for, for four weeks to be embedded with our, our engineers there and work hand in hand. 
there are other endeavors going on within Office of Advanced Manufacturing um, as well. And so our fellows get involved not only on the surgical side, but they understand some key aspects of leadership within VA. They look at other kinds of needs. So, for example, within VA, there's something called the Big Five, which are the five applications of 3D printing. So, for example, dental. Most people know dental. You can get 3D printed Invisalign, which is what you can get through the mail. Um, there is orthotics and prosthetics, so creating shoe inserts, for example, for veterans. There is assistive technology, so altering wheelchairs and other things in the ha- in the home with 3D printing. There's facilities management, so printing potentially parts for for equipment that has been that needs replacement parts or safety concerns within VA. So we've had we've had a thermal um, uh, fuse cover that's uh, that's that we've actually printed uh, within VA. But there's other aspects. There's been calls for us to help in terms of dialysis and safety couplers within dialysis as well. Um, and then finally, audiology actually has an implanted. FDA approved implant that we've been putting into um, veterans' ears uh, in their ear canal, especially there's some pathologies that allow collapse of the ear canal, and this is a way to keep that open. Um, and that was based on a design from a veteran. So again, having 3D printing in the environment allows for patients or anyone within the environment to help in this kind of iterative design of what ultimately we are going to use to help take care of the patients. And that's the real power of VA is what we bring to the table is the ability across multiple sites to be able to provide this technology. And that's why we're leading in the technology, not only in the education side, but also in its application. Well, thank you so much, both of you, Dr. Amendola, Dr. Otoya, for uh, joining us on Behind the Knife to give us this great um, description of 3D printing, the history and kind of its role in medicine right now, where it's going. Um, We really appreciate having you guys on. Dan, thanks very much. And again, if you have any 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 general surgery residents out there who would like to have a, a unique training in this technology, we are looking for fellows. We're looking for fellows outside um, of our borders. And, and please contact me. I'm happy to help in any way that I can to get people closer. We need more surgeons with this technology. We're at the very cusp at the beginning of this literature. And I think it's an exciting time to be training in it. And and if it's okay with you, we will include your email address in the show notes for this episode. Sounds great. Thanks very much. And we'll we'll send you some links to OAM, Office of Advanced Manufacturing from the VA as well. Perfect. Well, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dan. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.